me just say a little bit about the course of study. Um, it was in high school, probably the very first time that I uh, can remember the Spirit of God working in my life to kind of take a dead man and try to call him to life. I struggled over this theological question of what is faith. I wasn't particularly interested in knowing God. I have to be real honest with you. That's where I was at the time. But I was interested in avoiding hell. And um, I had been to enough church services to realize that to lay hold of salvation involved faith. What was it? I didn't know. And uh, told many times they did. My sister and I discussed it. And for a period of time, we went back and forth. Never did come to an adequate answer to it. But again, as I say, the Spirit of God was stirring up things. He was going to answer that question for me over the next years. And I could say maybe, once it's like I could say it's over the next 20 years, but it went on my whole life. But in the next 20 years, by giving me the opportunity to hear men who actually understood the life of faith and tell me exactly what it was. And to have the opportunity to observe lives that were being lived by faith. And, and they were different kinds of lives, different ages, different personalities, different callings. And yet there was this quality about them, this, this characteristic that they trusted God. So I had a great opportunity to develop. I've had, again, unusual opportunity to be close to and to meet people who really knew what it was to do that had proved they knew what it was to live by faith not theory in the last couple of years um i've had a kind of increasing desire to pull that all together <clears throat> and say this is what i learned this is what god taught me this is what he said this is what i have found out as i have endeavored to understand that way of faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. What does it mean? As I can think about people who might be in the same condition I was when I was in high school who say, yeah, that's what you're supposed to do, but what does it mean? And so what I'm, the first step in that is this series. In, I'm going to take 18 classes to thoroughly go through what that life is. What does the Word of God say about it? How does it develop? What are the issues involved? So that's what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks or, well, the next year. Let's commit our time to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you and ask you to, again, move by your Spirit. We thank you for every time you come to us, stir our hearts, draw them out. We thank you for every person here who has known what it is to be born again of the Spirit of God. We thank you for every person in whom you're working in any sense. And we're coming tonight to ask you to continue that work so that the Lord Jesus Christ will be glorified, glorified in our lives, glorified by what we are, glorified in the way we trust him. So, Father, we come and ask you, sort it all out for us, and we're looking to you in Jesus' name. Amen. I've entitled the course, again, it's just taken from one of the best-known verses on the life of faith in the New Testament, the life that I now live. I'm not giving that as the testimony as much as that's what Paul says. Now, let me just do a disclaimer here. I know it's gonna, I'm going to stumble on this tonight. Um, when I was first converted, everybody preached in the King James Version. All right? 
I know this verse in the King James Version, and every time I look up, I miss it because the New American Standard has rearranged it a little bit, and it just doesn't flow the same. It's not just a matter of getting a different word. So if it doesn't sound like what it looks like on the paper, it's King James. I just want you to know that. But it's still the essence of what's being said. There's no problem there. But here's the verse, Galatians 2.20. It's written right there at the top of your notes. It says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Now, we want to think about that verse tonight, but, you know, at, in those times I heard it at the very beginning, I don't know it was ever put in the context the verse has tremendous meaning. You can take it out, and it, it still flies all by itself. But if we are to understand what Paul is saying here, the full power of this, we have to stick it where it fits in the Scriptures. And this is where we start with an apostolic confrontation. I'm going to try to, to shorten this. I know this is it's a little tedious to go through what the problem was. But we need to face it. Christianity grows out of the Jewish faith, all right? Judaism was God working on the earth. It was from God. It was all to lead to the Messiah, to the Christ. Jesus was the Christ, and His work, and His, then finally His death, burial, and resurrection made possible Christianity. The earliest believers... In the church, we're all Jewish. They were all Jewish. All the apostles are Jewish. And that was, that's fine. There they are. And that was very real. That's a great thing, as long as they're all Jewish. But later on, a Gentile became a Christian. His name is Cornelius. Right? His name is Cornelius. His conversion is recorded in Acts chapter 10. What happens at his conversion was extremely important. Because a question's going to come up if there's a Gentile. How does he fit into the scheme? The Jewish people kind of they carried all this along, but what about a Gentile? What about somebody from the outside? Where will they fit in this, this new order? What is that new order? Let me just quickly tell you, Peter is the one, and it's important to the story here, Peter is the one who was there on the day when Cornelius came, had the experience of the new birth. God sent him there. That was a little disconcerting to Peter. Jews didn't go into the homes of Gentiles, but God told him to, and he did go. And it tells us there, and this is the shortened the whole thing, it tells us as he was preaching the word. It's while he is still preaching. He hasn't had time to get to his conclusion. He hasn't made an appeal. He hasn't told anybody what to do. It says while he was speaking, the Spirit of God came on him, came on the whole group there. And the same manifestations, or many of the same manifestations that had happened at Pentecost happened there. Now, that wasn't the normal pattern for people being converted. They didn't normally have those manifestations, but it was important on this occasion because that was the picture of the baptism of the Spirit of God. And it alerted Peter and the whole church 
that God had accepted Cornelius as a member of the body apart from anything that was Jewish. Oh, that's really... We live in a Gentile church. We don't ever face the reality of, of conflicts of, of this kind inside the church. And that was what the Apostle Paul understood as he went to preach the gospel. All right? He's going out to preach it and that... It is by faith in Christ that I immediately come to an under, a relationship with God. All right, that's the way it was. But the Jewish believers had a hard time with that. Because Gentiles didn't live the same way they lived. And there were some issues in the Jewish life which were extremely important to them. And one of them was the food laws. All right, the dietary restrictions of Judaism. They were very tight, and everybody had grown up with them. You remember, again, if you go back to that story in chapter 10 of the book of, of Acts, as God is preparing Peter to do this, which he doesn't want to do, all right? And he's hungry, and he's having his dream, and down in front of him is placed food, but it's unclean animals. And it is one of those funny things. Funny passages, because the Lord says to him, take and eat. And Peter, speaking to the Lord, says this, not so, Lord. <laughs> Isn't that an odd situation? Not so, Lord. All right, you're, you're in control, but I'm not going to do that. Why won't he do that? Because everything in his being had told him this was wrong. It's wrong to eat this stuff. And to do it is going to just, again, I don't know if you've ever had a conviction about the way things should be, and then you have to go a different direction. It's not easy, but this was the law of God, and I'm not going to cross that. God convinces him to do it. And at that point, it says, Peter realized something. God has now declared all foods clean. Now, he declared all foods clean, but there is still that issue of what people actually, the way they, they felt about it. Now, while the church was centered in Jerusalem, it wasn't a problem because everybody kept the law as far as the dietary. Nobody's going to break that very far. No big problem. But the church spread out, and there is a, uh, an advance of the gospel. And now you have a Gentile church, and that's in Antioch. That's where the story is, occurs here. Antioch is the first big Gentile church. It's run its elders and the original elders are all Gentiles, or some of them are Gentiles. Anyway, Peter or Paul and Barnabas are part of it, but there are other men. They're Gentiles. This is a church which is, for the most part, Gentile. All right? And so they don't keep these dietary laws. Now, none of that would make any difference, except that the early church had a practice. And their practice was, when they had a communion service, you would start the communion service by having a meal together. The love feast. Everybody gets together, has a potluck, and then we eat, or then we take the communion service. Well, that's okay if everybody brings stuff that you like. But what happens if you're Jewish and you have to go into this, and you still have this thought, this is the right way to eat, and oh, man, they're bringing this stuff. And you have to understand that from culture, this stuff was not only, it wasn't only wrong, but it was repulsive to them. A pig? You're going to eat a pig? Come on. Let's not eat a pig. All right? That's just it's out of bounds. It's repulsive. The whole thought of, nah, make them choke. All right? But at Antioch, Paul 
taught the gospel. He reminded them that nothing of that Jewish law in any sense makes you better for the kingdom. It doesn't separate you for the kingdom. You can eat whatever you want. That's your choice. But we're all going to eat together. And so they did. They ate together. Jews and Gentiles all eating together. Peter comes. Right? Peter is the apostle to the, to the Jews. He comes up to Antioch. He understands this because he saw Cornelius converted, and he also heard that, you know, he knows that all foods are clean. He heard that from the Lord's own lips while he was alive. It is recorded actually in the book of Mark, which is the gospel that he had the biggest influence on. So it's interesting he put it in there. But anyway, maybe because he'd been rebuked on this one. And so he started, he comes up there and he's eating with everybody. They're having the meal together. Great time. And then something happens, something else happens. Some other guys come up, it says from James. James was a very devout, he was very much committed to the Old Testament system, although he was a, he was a believer. And he had, at the, what's called the Council of Jerusalem, had acknowledged that, hey, all, all Gentile has to do is believe, and we're going to ask him to do some politeness to us, or just don't do this. But it's not law, it's just for, for the sake of not cutting across us. Do this. Okay. So, these guys come from, from James. They don't represent James. They're not, we can't think that James sent them there as spies or anything else, but they're very orthodox. When they get there, Peter's in, Peter has a problem in his conscience. He's not sure what to do here. Now, as time goes on, he begins to withdraw, and it says he withdrew out of fear of these men. It was out of fear. Now, <clears throat> the Bible doesn't go any further than that. It's, it's very hard to say what was he afraid of. And you can paint all kinds of pictures out here, but you don't know. All right? One thing I have learned in 50 years of walking with the Lord is this. You don't know what anybody, why anybody's doing anything unless they tell you. And half the time, they, they don't get it right anyway. All right. So anyway, so you don't know what goes on in the mind of somebody else. So if I don't have a record of what was going on in their mind, I don't know what Peter was thinking about. Why was he afraid? Um, and I'm going to do a little speculation. But again, this is just speculation. But I, what's the best case scenario? Probably the best case scenario is that he doesn't want them going back and reporting in Jerusalem that out here they're disrespecting the law because I don't know if you have read through the book of Acts how violent Jewish people became when you disrespected the law. And my best guess is that Peter says, man, i got to keep this. we got to keep this low-keyed. We can't let that kind of a persecution break out because of my you know, interactions here. I don't know, though. That may not have been what he was afraid of. All I know is that he began to separate. These guys were not going to eat with the church. We're going to have our own private meal. And he started meeting with them. Right? And when he did that, then members of the church who were Jewish said, whoa, well, we better do that too. And they started doing it. And then Barnabas, of all people, Barnabas started meeting with them. Now Paul's in a mess. A mess. Because he's got the apostle and he's got one of the elders of the church doing this. And the members of the church are confused. What is going on? What are they saying? 
what does Peter's withdrawal say about doctrine? That's, that's, this is the problem. This is, it's causing a division. You actually have two different churches. We don't even know if they came back together to meet for the actual Lord's Supper after this, whether they did that privately or whether they did it together. Paul takes a look at it. There are a lot of people just, uh, you know, they don't like what Paul does here, but there's, there was no choice. There was just no choice. A public thing had happened. It caused a public stir, and the fastest way to deal with it was to publicly confront it. And Paul does. He confronts the issue. He has to, so that everybody will be clear about the essence of the gospel. And in the verses which precede this verse, Paul begins to to speak. At the beginning, he speaks directly to Peter. Now, let me just say something about the passage. It's very much like the book of John. You have these problems because it starts off, he's obviously talking to Peter at the beginning, but it's a, there's a question as to whether this is all that he said. He said all this to Peter or whether he just said the first part to Peter and this is an explanation that he's giving to the Galatians of what he meant by that. This happens in the book of John a lot of times where a conversation will start and after a while you wonder, is that Jesus speaking or is this John making comment on Jesus speaking? You know, it just it, it's hard to tell. I personally believe that he said this all because of the way he puts it. Because after he talks about the gospel and the fact that a man is not justified by the works of the law but by faith, he doesn't just say, he doesn't just theologically put that out there. He gives a testimony. He's talking about himself. He's talking about himself. And that's what becomes important to us. Now, what did he say about himself? And what does that have to do with the life of faith? And so it starts off with this well-known part. I have been crucified with Christ. Now, let's again also understand this about the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was well known in the city of Jerusalem. He was the star student of the premier teacher in Jerusalem. The star student. I mean, he's he's the one that, that really excelled. And this was under the tutelage of a teacher who was the best, most respected teacher in Jerusalem. In the book of Philippians, Paul speaks about himself. And he tells us that he was a Pharisee. And in, as a Pharisee, he would have memorized enormous amounts of Scripture. He would have studied the law backwards and forwards. And when he, later on when he's called and he's made an apostle and he goes out to preach, he could, just, he could handle the Scriptures. He knew them. He knew them because he studied them. His study of the scriptures was so great that when he was older and he was appearing before Agrippa, he was still well known. Agrippa knew who he was. He knew who Agrippa was. And when he appeared before him, he said, Paul, Paul, your great learning is driving you mad. And he knew how, he knew how much he had devoted himself to the study of the word of God. He said, it's, it's you're going mad. That's, that was Agrippa's conclusion concerning him. Everybody knew that. Everybody in that crowd would have known it. The people, the way he refers to the guys from um, James indicates that he actually knew them but wasn't going to call them out by name. But those guys from James, I knew who they were. I knew where they were there. And you know who I am. See, he's talking to that group. He's talking to Peter who would have agreed with everything Paul said. He's talking to those men who may not have agreed. 
Now, we don't know what those men thought in the details, but we do know that they were bringing confusion. Second thing we know about Paul, why he was so well-known, is he led the persecution, the first persecution against the church. He led it, and he was zealous about it. He was there for the stoning of Stephen, and from that point on, he was the, he was the main cog in making this happen. Zealous to the point where he not only dealt with it in Jerusalem, he went around to the areas around it, and he was all the way on his way, or he was on his way to Damascus when the Lord finally stopped him. Zeal for God. And they knew that. Finally, Paul was a man who kept the law. This is incredible to think that that he could say this. And nobody ever challenged it. He said this on several occasions. Nobody challenged it. As to the law, as to what the law said, I was found blameless. Nobody could say to me, you're a hypocrite, Paul. So he had studied the law, he was zealous for the law, and he was careful to actually keep it. He does, he's not telling somebody else to be something he wasn't. Now with all that as a testimony, a question comes, what did it get him before God? And Paul wants you to understand something. He says, here's what God did with all of that. Here was his conclusion about who I am. He took it and he killed it. He crucified it. He put it to death. I have been crucified with Christ. The reason, again, he's not here talking theologically about, I don't think so much about the idea of death with Christ and alive with Christ. He is talking to men. He's staring them in the face. Men who are convinced that if they do certain things, they can please God. If they keep the law, and if these Gentiles would just keep the law, they would be more pleasing to God. And he says this, I was as pleasing to God from your perspective as it was possible to be. I gave my life to the study of the Word of God. I gave my life to honoring and defending that Word, even into persecution. I gave myself to making sure that everything it said was completed, and yet I was wrong with God. He took the whole of that, and he came to a conclusion about it. We were thinking this morning about the book of Ephesians, and in the second chapter of Ephesians, Paul describes what it means to be dead in sin. I mean, with a thing you were, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. About halfway through that description, he changes it from you to among them we all too formerly lived. He concludes himself, we all lived like this, indulging in the desires of our flesh and of our mind, and were, and this is important, and were by nature, this is who I, this is Paul who was so zealous, and were by nature children of wrath just like everybody else. It's one of the most brutal conclusions that Paul he said, all this had left me in the same place as people who didn't care at all about God. Children of wrath. Now, that's a, that's a very unpopular thought in our own day. <laughs> it's a very unpopular thought. And, you know, how long can you say it before you're going to get, you know, ridden out of town? But the truth of the matter is that your life and my life was a complete loss. 
as far as God is concerned, worthless. There is nothing to work with. That bothers people. It bothers people. Uh, that's pretty mean to say to people. Here's the point that I want to make here. If you never get hold of how little there is in you, how the, the worthlessness of you apart from God before you were converted, you are never going to fully embrace what God has for you. The first step in faith is giving up. It's giving up on the hope that you have that there's something here which can please God. Right? You have to come there. You have to come there. And again, um, this is the illustration from this morning, and it's 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 kind of thing. Um, I was raised away from water, all right. So I never learned how to swim. You have to have water to swim, you know. <laughs> I didn't have any opportunity to get. I became a Boy Scout, and you're supposed to know. I mean, you know how far you can go in Boy Scouts without swimming? Yeah, nowhere. <laughs> right? Yeah. Anyway, you can become something else. Um, but so I'm gonna I'm gonna have to learn how to swim. And I went down to this pool to learn how to swim. I was scared to death of water. I'm just telling you the truth. I did not trust that stuff at all. Not at all. You see, for me, swimming was, I'll hold the side. I'll put my foot on the ground. As long as I can touch something solid, I will be in this pool. But you're not going to take me to that other end and stick me where there's nothing below me that I can reach. And there's nothing beside me that I can reach. And you know what happens? You don't learn how to swim. There has to come a point at which you say, I'm going to let go of this. I'm going to give up, okay, and I'm going to trust this. All right? Lo and behold, it, it works. I can't tell you the mental torment I went through to get to that point. But I think about that with regards to faith, because if you don't want to acknowledge how worthless you are apart from God, what it means to be a child of wrath, you are never going to embrace the reality of what God has done for us when he raised us in Christ. But Paul's going to face it, and right now he's facing it in front of those people because here were men, they're in the back there, and they've called these Jewish people out and said, you need to do something else to please God. He says, and it's a matter of keeping law, which is going to come out of your flesh. Paul says, no, it is not going to come out of there. We need to get something clear. And so he says concerning himself, I was crucified with Christ. I, Paul, who you know, if there was a way to have pleased God by the keeping of the law, I would have been that man. But this is what God said about me. It's not what Paul decided he was going to do. It's what God said about it. That's why in the book of Philippians he says, those things which were gained to me, what's he say? Those things which... That's what he was thinking. They were gained to me. There were things which were giving me a right relationship with God. I'm counting the but what? Lost. I'm going to let go of the whole thing. That's not because he just didn't want it anymore. It's because he realized this is of absolutely no value. Paul comes in the book of Romans in chapter 7 talking to people who haven't quite gotten hold of this in their life of faith. And he says this in chapter 7. One of the things he says there. There's a conclusion there that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. In me. That is in my flesh. That's 
who I am apart from God. That's what he's talking about here. That's in the book of, of Romans anyway. There's nothing good. There's nothing. There's nothing. There is no reason for God to care about me at all. There's nothing I can appeal to him with. And uh, that becomes, a, Paul says it, there it is. But then he says this, this is such a tremendous passage. He says, but I'm alive. The old King James said this way, nevertheless I live. New American Standard says it a little bit differently, but he says that, that now I have a life. And that life is because in, if I'm going to live and it can't come from me, it has to come from God. If I'm going to be what God wants me to be, and it cannot arise out of who I am, all right? He's already decided to put that to death. Where can it possibly come from? What well, comes from God on the basis of faith. He's going to do that later on, but he's going to make him alive in Jesus Christ. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. That's what he says. You were a child of wrath. He concludes that passage. But God being rich in mercy, not because there was anything about us that was worthy, but because he is a gracious God, set his love on you and went and got you. Nobody's ever going to fully understand the life of faith. Then you realize it. The whole thing, it started with God moving. That's why I want to start with, again, you can look back in your own life. I'm sure you can, you, those moments before you were converted, if, if you weren't converted when you were little and you can't remember that part, but if you were like me, I was 21 years old, and you can look back. And what was happening? It wasn't me seeking God. It was God seeking me. There was a dead man there who has no desire for God. That's what it says in Romans chapter 3, right? There's no one who seeks after God, but God seeks after men. God seeks after men. And he comes, and he stirs, and he moves. And he convinces me that everything I have is nothing. It took me three years, I can back over there. It took me three years to grasp that. That's why I'm, I'm pleading with you to think about it. I was such a proud man. I was willing to do all kinds of things for God. And I kept thinking that was faith. I'm, if I'm willing to do this, if I'm willing to do this, if I'm willing to do this. And he finally had to say, you know what? I don't care about your willing because you're a rotten sinner. It's, it's a rotten piece of fruit. I can't use it. I got to get rid of it. It took three years of Mr. Carroll's preaching before. And yeah, that's amazing that I can endure that. But for three years, he pointed out to me that apart from Jesus Christ, you are nothing, absolutely nothing. It, again, the night before I was actually converted, I remember sitting there and thinking that, that there's nothing here. So when I came to the Lord the next day, it wasn't, I'm promising, <laughs> I'm coming. I'm not coming to promise I'll follow you or tell you anything else. Here I am. Save it, please. That's all I would do. Why? Because it was nothing there to work with. Why did, why did God let that happen to me? Because unless, you know, I wanted to answer that question, what's faith? I will never understand the answer to the question, what's faith, until I find out where you cannot place your faith. All right? 
we're going to be seeing this as we go through this whole whole matter. This is a culture which is going to tell you your primary responsibility is to trust yourself. You've got to love it and trust it. You just have to. That's where you, you know, just believe in yourself. I'd suggest you stop that. Now, again, that's, that's very anti-culture. And it's not so you can beat yourself up because that was the night before I was converted. The next day, I passed from death to life. And after three years of trying to produce life, I passed from death to life. And I knew a new surge of capacity which I had never, ever known before. I knew a desire to sing the praises of God that was never there before. Why is it there now? Because Paul says that I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I'm alive. Why? Because God put into me the living Christ. You realize that tonight? If you have come to faith in him, he has placed within you the living Christ. You see, you are complete in him. Everything you will ever need in life is because of that relationship. There's another one. Just like we have a trouble with this, how bad I am, I don't know, I'm not that bad. Then we come over here and we have trouble with, I don't know. Jesus is important, but is he, can you say you're complete in Christ? That's all, that's all you need. Ooh, that's a big, that was early on in my Christian life. This was a big one. Is it real? Is it true? Can I actually say to people that it's all you need? You don't need psychology. You don't need all the other things. If, if that's all you had, you would have enough. That when Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do whatever he asks me through Christ who strengthens me. That he's telling the truth or do I need something else? Paul has come to, he, he saw how, he says, guys, I've tried it all. I've done it all. I've done everything that law can do. There's nothing else I could have done. And God said, throw it away. But now he has given me this life. I am not going back to that law that failed. And I am not going to let you drag my church back to that law that failed. You can't go there. Because the, the hope of the Christian is that you're identified with Jesus Christ. You share life with him. Christianity, we'll see in the next couple of weeks, is all about life. It's not about just belief. It's about life. God wants you to experience life in abundance. And he's going to do that by tying you to the one who is life himself. I am the light of the world. I am the light and life. Go through the I am's that Paul has or that Jesus gives in the book of John. You'll find out they're all tied up with life. He is the bread of life. He's the light that leads to life. They walk in, won't have darkness, but will have the light of life. Right? He's a good shepherd who gives life. He's the resurrection and the life. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He is the vine that gives life. All right? He is, he's all those different things and more beside. Okay, now, so Paul says that. 
But there is a response, a natural, practical response that comes when you see that. If you understand this, and this is where the faith comes in. He says, and now the life that I live, the life that I now live. Now, it's important that he puts it this way, because although justification by faith is extremely important, it's where we'll start, and we'll talk about that early. Sometimes we think that once we've been justified by faith, we've exercised faith, and that's the end of faith. I mean, practically speaking, for a lot of people, that's where faith ends until they have a problem. And then, then they'll exercise faith in that. And I'm, not, I'm just saying that's the way we practically go, right? What Paul says is this, the life that I now live in the flesh, the day-by-day day of my life, the day-by-day day of interacting with the churches, the day-by-day day of preaching the gospel, the day-by-day day of dealing with Peter, the day-by-day day of everything. How does he face it? What's he say in the verse? I live by faith in the Son of God. I live by faith in Him. I live by faith. That's the reason we want to go through this in detail because we can, we can be close to that and miss it. That's why I think that story at the beginning is so important. Peter knew that. I'm convinced of that. Peter knew this. Whatever reason Peter had for going out and, and eating with the Jews and, and cutting off from the Gentiles, it wasn't because he believed you could be justified by the law or that the law could mean anything. He couldn't have been. I mean, he's been through too much. I, I don't think he could be that thick. Now, he already knew this. But what had happened? In the middle of the fight, a cloud came in, questions came in. I don't know what they were. Again, I've, I've speculated, but that may not be true. So I don't, I don't want to have to face Peter later on. But you know, I wasn't. that wasn't what the problem was. Okay, okay, whatever you want. But, but something was there which created a cloud, and he moved away from the, the life of faith. He moved away from that confidence. He did. If the apostle a person who walked with Jesus for all those years could enter into confusion because of circumstances he was in. If a, an evangelist, Barnabas, could make a move which moves him away from faith and which in, encourages other people to move away from faith and requires the Apostle Paul to stand up and call it out, well, we don't have apostles here. Is it possible that we could have all the vocabulary of this and slide away? Just create a life that is not, it, it has, again, we would acknowledge it to be a life of faith, but is it an actual life of faith? Now, again, I'm saying that for my own sake. I'm not, I'm not here to speculate about, you know, I'm not here to rebuke anybody at the thing. I'm just saying it is sadly possible I can say that from experience. It is sadly possible to have all the right vocabulary and not be trusting the Lord in a given circumstance. It's happened too many times in my life. This pull, that pull, this pressure, that pressure. Next thing you know, you're not thinking clearly and you're, you're out here and you've got the living Christ within to face something and you're not facing it anymore because you're not coming back to him in faith. Makes sense. That's why I want to have this, uh, these sessions. I want to stop and think about that. 
What is it? Because that's the natural response. If, I, if I'm concentrating on the fact that the life of Christ is within me, hey, then, it's, then the, I can do all things through Christ is the right response, right? And it works. It actually meets us in those, those needs. I think one of the reasons we have so many difficulties we have is because we don't recognize him. And so we'll take him for this and we'll take him for this, but we pass it up for this. That we, that we pick and choose. Not that we're, we're trying to, it's just that we never see it. In the Old Testament, <clears throat> if you go through the study of the, how God dealt with the nation, what he's always trying to do is to bring them to a place where they'll entrust themselves to him. That's what he's always trying to do. He puts them in difficult places. He puts them in, will they come to him? Will they do it? Will they trust him? Right? And that's what he was really looking for in the Old Testament. He wasn't looking so much for them to keep that law in its, all of its detail. They were, he was looking for them to come and, and entrust themselves to him. That's why there's a Red Sea. <laughs> There was a Red Sea in order to teach them what great God he was and what he could do and how they needed to rely on him. Sometimes they learned and sometimes they didn't. Sometimes they could have an experience in one area and the next moment they're in a completely different area. And again, we're not here to be critical of them. One day, Elijah can face 400 prophets of Baal and he's dealing with the whole matter and he, he, he's standing for God and a couple of days later he's a wobbling and he, he collapses. He just collapses. Now again, there's reasons why that happens. There's things. But you see, he had, to, he had to have faith here and he had to have faith here. And Sometimes we can have the faith in one situation and not have in the other. We have to understand how the whole thing works. That's why I want to take time with it. And a lot of our lives is God engineering, I believe, our circumstances to put us in places where we can find out what a great God we serve. And we are engineering our circumstances to avoid that. Right? So often. Now, not completely, but who wants pain? Who wants pressure? Who wants, as I've said so many times here, the Red Sea is a great place to look back to. It's wonderful when you're on the other side of the Red Sea. But when you are looking at water and you are looking at Egyptians, angry Egyptians, and you've got your kids at your feet, it's not the most pleasant place to be. Engineered by God to show them what great, great God he is. Right? So... But if we're going to see him in those circumstances, we're going to have to know how he works. And that's what we want to be, be thinking about. I want to finish up with one last thought from this particular passage. What he, he concludes next is this. He says this. I, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Right? And I said earlier, I don't think you're ever going to really grasp the greatness of of the life that God has given to us unless you give up on who you are. Right? Because you're going to keep using yourself. You're going to keep turning back to it. So you rob yourself of the opportunity to really know what it is, to rely on the Lord and see Him work. Right? But here's the other side of it. 
you're also going to rob yourself of the joy of understanding the great love of God. See, Paul was worthless. And he knew that God is, he was under the wrath of God. But then he learned something, that although he was under the wrath of God, an object of wrath, and this to many seems like, a, a, you know, this can't work together. That is, this doesn't, it, it's paradoxical. He's an object of the wrath of God, but he's an also an object of the sovereign love of God. Chosen in Christ before foundation. There it is. He's been chosen, and God comes in a sovereign act to get him. And so he knows that not only is the life of the Lord within him, but it is, it's not just Jesus, it is the one, and I love this particular passage. He's talking in the first person. He says that Jesus was the one who loved me. Paul's talking about himself. He loved me in all my rottenness. And he gave himself to get me out of there. Tremendous. Tremendous, right? It's a great thing to know that the Lord loved you personally. And that's the only way, you, if he loved Paul, then we have to assume that every person that's ever come to him, why? Why did the Lord come to me when I was in high school and begin to stir when I was absolutely? I wasn't like Paul. I had plenty to my record. <laughs> when I was a child of wrath, there was good reason why I was a child of wrath. Right? Why has he come? Because although I'm a, I am an object of his wrath, I am also in an inexplicable way an object of his love. And he came he came and got me on a cross. He came and got me by paying the penalty. And then by the Spirit of God, he came to me in Greenville, South Carolina and got me. Actually, he came to me in Orlando, Florida and took me to Greenville, South Carolina so he could get me. And my circumstance is not unique. This is true for you also. It's, it's, it's worthwhile to keep remembering what God did. How was it that you, that you were stirred when you didn't know God and, and began to move towards Him? What did He say? What did He engineer? That was the living God coming to you. What was the message that God spoke? And man, your heart, oh, wow, maybe I better check, check of that. You know, that might be important. You thought you were just living life and you didn't realize that the living God was after you. Well, Paul has come to a place. He knows I was worthless. The law won't help. Don't feed that to my flock. All right. Life is in Jesus Christ. And all sufficiency is in him for everything we're going to need. Don't go back to law. And we're going to appropriate that. We're going to make that ours by faith. And as we make it ours by faith, we are going to find out. We're going to begin to know what it is to live in a love relationship with the Lord on a private basis, a personal basis. He's the one who loved me and gave himself for me. It's a tremendous verse. And that's where we want to start. But what does it all mean? How does it all work out? That's what we'll come back next week. We'll begin to think about what is faith? What is, what's the definition? How is it used? And we'll begin to probe this way and this way and this way. What is this subject? And how can we enter into the fullness and the richness of that life? Okay. So I hope I'll see you back next week.
Well, that gets us at least interested in the subject. But let's commit our time to you in prayer. Father, we come and give you thanks for what it means that you have loved us with an everlasting love. <clears throat> thank you for coming to us. We thank you for every person in this room who knows you. Objects of your wrath which were made the objects of your incredible love. Thank you for it. We thank you for giving us the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we're asking you to teach us that way of faith. Empower us with might and inner man to live by faith in the Son of God. And we come and trust you for it. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.